I'm Colby Spencer, and this is Vantropolis. This is Vantropolis, a podcast about the happenings, the goings-on, and the general day-to-day life and antics of the underslept masses working in Vancouver's film industry. I'm no expert. I'm just nosy. And if you are too, let's do this. Inviting your sibling to be a guest on your podcast sort of goes how you think it would. A little bickering here and there, some reminiscing about growing up, and comparing notes about your crazy parents. We sit down and talk about craft service, also known as crafty, where my brother Stefan essentially lives a dual life on set by providing both first aid as well as snacks and refreshments to keep the film crew happy while they work. What I didn't expect to happen in this episode is that he would choke up more than once, as he talked about overcoming addiction when he first entered the film industry, and then as he spoke about a fellow film mentor, someone who changed the course of his film career right up until today. It made me realize that sometimes this podcast will end up sharing someone's personal film journey in a much more impactful way than I ever thought when I started it. As an aside, Stefan drops a lot of F-bombs in this episode. I gave up editing all of them out. But if you hang around until the end, he also drops some beats. Here he is. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Did I have a choice? Not really. It is a blood, uh, it's a blood brother burden. I thought you were adopted. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good segue. So this is my brother, Stefan Skoronsky. Um, We have different last names, so I feel like we should just rip that off like a Band-Aid right now. I know it's 2019, so a lot of people, it's not new having different last names, but in the 80s, it was a big deal. Nobody realized we were related, and I feel like it was maybe a good thing sometimes in school. So you are Skaronsky. I'm a Spencer. I think we all know why I didn't take that name. <laughs> so yeah, we have different last names. We are blood siblings. We suffered the same grievances in the same home, and I feel like it bonds us forever. So yes, you are obligated to be here today. <laughs> um, but seriously, thanks for coming. Obviously, this is a new podcast uh, for me, and I'm excited that I have so many friends and family that actually work in film because it's a really easy place to mine for guests. But I have never had anyone in craft service, so I am psyched because this is a brand new world today for us. Okay, so I kind of want to just start by talking about your journey because I kind of start all the podcast episodes that way of just sort of the journey into film and how you kind of got here. Um, So why don't you start with that? Just sort of growing up, you know, I don't think you ever really talked about film. You liked music and skateboarding and and you still like those things. But you weren't like a, that wasn't like your career, you know, passion or you weren't chasing that back then, right? No, um, that's that's pretty easy story to tell. Growing up, I think you remember. I I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was a I was a punk, and not like a bad kid. I mean, I was I was punk rock. I didn't agree with a lot of the things the kids wanted to do, or what they wanted to do in the future, or somebody wanted to be a fireman. I didn't find anywhere I belonged, uh, and I struggled to find a place. So, uh, at one point, I was sitting down with uh, mom and dad. We were talking about Scott Harper, the locations manager. So mom and dad were like, hey, you you know, you could be in film. And honestly... Did they really? Did they say that? Oh, because of Scott, right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, because they're always trying to find me something to do um, as a career. So when faced with that, it's like, it's like, I can't be in film. It's like being an astronaut. Nobody, everybody says they want to be an astronaut, but no kid 
is really going to take on the task of being an astronaut unless you're born for it. Well, it kind of feels like being an actor, for example, sort of the same bucket. Right? Yeah, I can't be in the movies. It's right. too big. It's bigger than me. Yeah. After, I'm sure, a pile of phone calls and nagging, um, Scott agreed to uh, bring me onto his crew as a production assistant. And back then, it was pretty hard to get in. What year was that? Do you remember? 98, 99. Okay. Um, so I jumped in. Uh, my first day as a PA, I had no idea what I was doing. You would have been like 19 or 20? Yeah, I would have been, let's say I was 20. Okay. Because I don't remember numbers. Close dates. enough. You were, you were legally entitled to work in the province of British Columbia. More or less. <laughs> so, uh, first day, uh, Scott Harper told me, uh, go to Riverview Hospital. It was my first time out. And just wait there and somebody will be there. And Which we should probably say is not a real hospital, right? It was a closed... It's a closed... Uh, like mental institution, really. I wish there was a better word for it. But yeah, in the 60s, they'd call it a mental institution and you'd get locked away there. Yes. Showed up at Riverview. Somebody handed me the keys. Big, what would you say, a, a teacup size ring. With like those boat. skeleton keys? Yeah, with a boat, like 20 keys on it. And they said, wait for set deck. And I'm like... Who's Setek? I have no idea who Setek is, but okay. Just thrown in the deep end. So dropped in front of this old uh, abandoned uh, institution, hospital. I waited. I waited two hours. I didn't have a cell phone back then. Yeah, right. No cell phones. Okay. Did you sit on the steps or in your car? Or? I sat in your car. My car. Why'd you have my fucking car? <laughs> Where was I? I? I, I? I might get to that. I put some speakers. I didn't in agree this, to this. I put a stereo in there for you okay. with my earnings. All right. So nobody showed up. I grabbed the, the skeleton keys to Riverview and said, screw it. I'll just go wander around the building. This is awesome. Who gets this opportunity? This is the beginning of a horror film. It is. But and somehow when I was a kid, I had the balls to, to unlock the door and shut it behind me and lock it and keep one eye out the window as I wandered the entire building. It felt like Christmas morning. It felt like being released into a theme park without of course. parents and everything's running. It's a throwback. If you've never been in there, like, imagine, like, an old 60s hospital. It's brick and it's got, like, mint green walls. And some of the stuff is still there, like big industrial sinks and yeah. some of the cooking, like the big kitchen area where they would have made all the food is still kind of part and parcel there. Yes. It's very odd that some of it's still there. Like, well, it's interesting. It's like a living relic, right? Yeah, it really is. And it, the walls drip with uh, sadness. I know. Events. It's true. Events. It's kind of a weird it word is a to dark, say, It's a dark spot on, on our province's past, for sure. It carries a lot of uh, weight when you walk in there. Yeah. So I did my day at Riverview. I wandered through. Set deck never showed up. My boss came up, the assistant location manager, uh, relieved me for the day. I went home and finished prepping. Riverview, that was my, my first job as prep PA. And Did you know what the show was for? Yeah, it was called uh, The Immortal. It oh, was, The Immortal, okay. It was I'm sure a, some people remember that one. No, it was a second-rate TV show oh. that nobody watched with... Uh, <laughs> Aren't they all like that? What's that guy's name? I can't remember. The guy from Renegade, you remember him? Lorenzo Lamas. Lorenzo Lamas with the ponytail. Yeah. Was he like a martial artist? <laughs> no? <laughs> I don't know, as okay. much as any tall white boy is a martial artist. Sure. Uh, that's not fair. But anyway, so yeah, I jumped in and I kept 
fighting for calls and uh, say said to my ALM, hey, call me out. I want to work this thing. I want to work this thing. So you were non-union, obviously. And, yeah, I was permittee. That's part of, locations is part of the DGC, right? The Directors Guild of Canada. Yeah. And you have to put in a certain amount of hours, et cetera, jump through hoops to get in the union. But you were just starting out, so it was just rogue. You were on non-union shows. No, this was union. Oh. And I was a permittee in the Directors okay. Guild. And I needed 60 or 75 days to become a full member. Right. So, yeah, that was off PA, and you kind of try and uh, network a lot with people and make friends and get ALMs that like you, that bring you out to the shows. Really, you just want to work, earn that 150 bucks a day, get 60 to 75 days in your logbook, mm-hmm. and uh, and you think PA is almost top of the game because who the hell's going to become anything else beyond PA? When right. You're- yeah, but it is a magical place. Like, it's like free film school, Tony was mentioning, right? Yeah, it is. Because you're just soaking it up. There's so much downtime. Like, if you're not sweeping cigarette butts, you're just looking around watching them prep for a shot. If I wasn't sweeping them, I'd, I was smoking them. Yes. So. You're causing both the, the mess and cleaning it up after. Yeah, but you can just flick them on the ground because you got to clean them up anyway. <laughs> it's, you're just giving it's it cool. to you. It's a gift you're giving yourself later. It's like being the kids at a Christmas party. You were making your own job. Yeah. You were smoking and then throwing the butts and then cleaning them up. Yeah. And then a few, That's years, job security. Into, few years into PAing. Um, but I ended up partying too much. Um, Colby, you might not know some of these stories, but. Oh, geez. I Remember mom and to, dad might listen to this episode. Yeah, let them. But I ended up going to rap parties and and hanging out with misfits because film is full of misfits. We're all, a lot of us are misfits who don't function in a nine to five world. Absolutely. So and the early days where I would say also like from what I hear a lot more hardcore, like it's a lot probably tamer now in yeah. terms of health and you know not glorifying that living hard after work and stuff. Like I feel like that's tightened up a bit now. There's definitely been um, a culture shift within right. our local film industry. Yeah, there's still elements. Of- yeah, there's elements everywhere, but overall I would say you know even with rock and roll, you know that that's not as glorified anymore. No. It's kind of that this old is, metal rocker mentality, but I would say nowadays you don't have a lot of longevity if you're going to give her like that. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you as usual. This is our sibling relationship in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> Just recorded now forever. So about three years into PAing, uh, I met Katie, my wife. Uh, I remember doing a few film days when I had first met Katie, and that was about the end of my stint. Uh, one of my last PA gigs, I... I met a guy named Dion, another PA. We ended up partying together a few times. Uh, long story short, or you want the whole nasty story? Well, give me the abridged version. The abridged version. Um, we went to a rap party. Uh, said, fuck it, let's go to White Rock, and we'll burn some wood and drink more beer. And then we went to the Funky Planet at the border, and somebody, some stranger fronted us 50 bucks for drinks. So we drank all that. Stranger said, give me your money. And so we pissed off. Oh, Jesus. Um, and drove pretty friggin' drunk uh, <laughs> with the idea that we were going to Vancouver. Oh, God. And that's the last thing I remember until I woke up with a pool of piss on my bedroom floor when I was living downstairs. Yeah. Uh, Dion was face down on the coffee table. Uh, I don't know how I woke up. I was probably upside down and backwards. Total mess. Uh, thought, where the hell's the van? Because we took that van. The work van? The big, ugly, what my friends would call the rapist oh, van. Oh, the personal van. No, we I thought you meant the work van. Thing. Gotcha. And looked out, and the van was thankfully there and parked in front of the house. Our home van. It was like a 80s brown 
Dodge. Big rapist van. <laughs> but you could a whole family could live in there. There was like a sink. Yeah. Com- commander chairs that were sort of a mustard velour. I'd rock it today, but back then it was an embarrassment. I was embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that I was embarrassed now. You know, as a kid, you're just a bit of a prick about stuff like that. But you realize your parents are really good, and it's just silly, but you don't know that then, I guess. Anyway, back to film. (laughs) They give me an 18-foot fucking rapist (laughs) van to drive around at 17 years old. Well, you kind of deserved it. Look how you treated it. You don't remember getting it home. Hey, I got it home safe loaded. Okay. Anyway, so this was my... uh, God help us. This was my red flag, and I needed to get the hell away from film. Uh, because I was meeting the wrong people. I wasn't at a stage in my life where I was ready to take on the responsibility of going to parties, or I just wasn't in a good place. So I shifted my focus, for whatever reason, I can't actually remember, to uh, a quote-unquote real job. Um, After some searching, uh, with mom and dad's help, we found uh, fire protection, and I'm going to skim over this. Please do. Got some training in this pseudo-trade, which is barely regulated, and a bunch of hacks run it. So check your fire extinguishers yourself, everybody. <laughs> PSA. And I ended up being an alcoholic doing the 9 to 5. I hated it. And so I drank. And so I'd go to work. I'd murder it at work. I'd have like a 1,000 fire extinguishers laid out on a floor. And today I know my skill set and capability. But then I was like, I hate my job so much. I'm going to finish all this shit today. I'm going to do everything I can in this shop or on the job. So I can go home early and just get loaded. And that's what I did. And that and that kept going. I jumped a couple companies, but I just kept drinking. And at that point, I was stuck. I'm about a buck 55 now. Uh, I weighed 210, 215 pounds at five foot eight, five foot seven. Yeah, you're big. Just from boozing. From booze. Well, I was drinking uh, beers on the way home, on the drive. Uh, 26er vodka every night. Good God. With backup booze. And I was a mess. So after about, I think it was about two and a half years, I went through that pseudo-trade and alcoholism, somehow held down a job. Uh, My pancreas gave out, went to the hospital, fell into a drug-induced coma for 11 days. Uh, And the drugs were the hospital drugs, not drugs from you. Well, it was withdrawals too. No, I don't take any any drugs. I didn't then, I still don't. That was what? That was 2005? Or so? I'm going to say four? Yeah, maybe. Katie remembers better than I do. I'm not a That pack. was horrific for our family. I, I'm glad you brought this up because it's actually a really interesting part of the story that I never really thought when I wrote down notes about us meeting. It's kind of a big part. Yeah, it is. You're right. And that's it, why it's good to not plan everything because it, it, it takes on a life of its own. Anyways, carry you're, on. You're welcome. So I woke up from this coma. Uh, I saw mom's face. I think it was two weeks you were in the ICU. Two weeks, 11 days I was under. Yeah. You lost like 15 pounds just laying there. 15? Yeah. I lost 50. Oh, 50? Yeah, I came out at a buck 60. Oh, uh, when I went in, they weighed me up. I probably blocked a lot of it out, honestly. It was pretty traumatic. Uh, it's nice to hear that because I might actually tear up. I didn't give a shit then. Well, a part uh, of my trauma was going in the ICU and seeing bags of pee and potassium and dad explaining everything to me and li- me literally being like... If you, if you talk about this anymore, I'm going to pass out, Dad. Because he went all, like, technical, had his clipboard, he knew all the stats. And I can't take blood. I don't like looking at any of that stuff. I don't know how I ever gave birth. And he would look at me. He's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I can't talk about pee and potassium right now, Dad. I'm going to pass out. i got to leave here. 
And he's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, this is all just too much. Yeah, the professor had, turned it up to 10. Oh, he turned it up to 11. So is that 8.9 milligrams oh. of potassium or 8.8? Dad should just, like, hang out at the hospital and help take notes for doctors and nurses. He would be amazing. <laughs> he's like a beautiful mind for medical stats. So, yes, that dad was there full on. Mom was a mess. And, yeah, I was in and out because I was working full time downtown. So I would come when I could. You weren't awake. But, you know. We're going to come back to this stage in my life because I've got something to... Okay. We're going to go full full circle to this. Okay. So let's kind of move... Let's. I don't want to move it along because it's a very important story, but let's bring it back to kind of your epiphany there. Obviously, you were leading to something, right? Yeah. So I, I woke up. I saw my mom's face like she almost just lost her son. And that's a look uh, that you don't know until you see it. I spent about a month and a half, two months after I got out of the hospital recovering straightening my brain out, uh, smoking cigarettes on the deck, having tea or even coffee with, with mom and getting normal again. I, I felt normal. I was sober. My eyes were opened physically. I was awake. My brain was firing. And so my mom said, well, well, Scott Harper's got this job. Same guy who hired me as a, as a PA. Um, he's a unit manager or a PM or something on this Bollywood film and they need a craft service guy. And I go, well, I've seen craft service. You know, it's just a bunch of stupid snacks. And you just go there and put snacks out. No big deal. And, you know, you have to get And then your... should I be the narrator? The narrator. It was not just snacks on a table. He would find out soon. You're... It was not just snacks on a table. Edit that out. It, it ruins the story. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think the deal was it was it was about 10 grand I'd make uh, through this particular job. And so I invested 10 grand into getting a truck, uh, putting a kitchen in it. Shitty kitchen. Getting my first aid, which is super hard, especially your first time through. And Yeah, we don't have to talk about that right now, but I do want to come back to that because that's a part, like we were saying before, that people don't think about. It's sort of like a flight attendant. Your main role is to save lives. Secondarily, you provide some refreshments and, you know, make coffee. But it's not the other way around. No, the good production managers know that it's safety first. Right. The bad ones say... What what kind of cereals do you have on your... Can you do fruit salad? Yeah. <laughs> the end of the day, it the, the first job is about the safety. So you had to go and get that. Yeah. And how... What's that like? It's industrial first aid, right? Uh, they call it... Uh, what is it called? I don't know. I just take it. It's like workplace... Level three workplace first aid. But it's full on. Other crafties are laughing at me right now. <laughs> That's Okay. Hopefully but, they're laughing for other reasons too, not just that. Yeah, I, d- I don't know or care what it's called, but I know it's okay. level level three first aid, uh, industrial or whatever. And it's hard. Very. You've got two weeks um, to read your book, uh, get some notes, get some very quick qu- uh, lessons, uh, very quick lessons on shit, um, fixing a cut on somebody's hand or doing CPR, or strapping somebody to a spine board. I mean, they fly through it, so you have to do a lot of your own study and you have to care, and you're taking a mass of information and trying to jam it into a process for saving somebody's life or maintaining life support. And it's not always that. It's cuts and band-aids. Yeah, but, but still, there is there is that expectation. You're taking all this knowledge and you're cramming it into this careful process, which is fluid at the end of the day. So how much is the course? It's not cheap. Uh, it was about 700 bucks. Okay, so that's out of pocket for you, right? You have to pay that. And then if you fail, what happens? You, I think you pay 30 bucks or okay. something and you can take your exam again. Okay. 
And often when you fail, it's not because it's not because you don't know something or you're a fuck up. Uh, but it's the process of of maintaining life support specifically is so finicky. If somebody's got a heart attack, you don't need to secure their neck. Or if somebody fell ten feet, you might consider doing C spine control, which is is immobilizing their neck. But if you miss something small and you don't manage what could be their very serious injury, which is often uh, managing their spine, right? Um, you fail, and that totally. happens. That can happen to me. I've done it five times. I aced it my last time, but it can happen my next time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens to firemen, paramedics. It happens to everybody. You make very small mistakes. So it's a, it's good when you get it. That is a very solid credential. Having that industrial first aid, let's just call it that, is a working title. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. Unfortunately, um, I've seen hacks graduate that class, which drives me insane. Oh no. I don't want to go get called to a place where somebody has fallen out of a lift by at 30 feet and they're hanging on for life and they can't breathe and they have a punctured lung and they're puking up blood. These things are realities. And unfortunately I've had to come to the, I've come to a place where I, I know it's my problem. Right. It's a reality. Yeah. The fact that, that somebody. That burns on you. Yeah. Is there other first aid on set? Sometimes there's a, a driver with a level two or level one to cover the early crew. What about with stunts and stuff? Uh, stunt guys quite often have first aid tickets. Okay. Uh, I don't ask them because I put it on myself. Yeah, set. fair enough. I was just curious, right? If that That's a lot of a burden in a whole set if you're the only person. If there is motorcycle work that day, if they're jumping a motorcycle, uh, if it hasn't already been taken care of, I will suggest or push for paramedics to be on site. People who deal with spinals every day. I have seen people pass first aid who are right. hacks. And that's the scary thing. People, yeah. people want to be craft service. And they, I'm really good at making soup. Right. Which is fucking great. But if you can't handle a spinal and keep your, your food in your gut, mm-hmm. you should get the hell off set. Yeah. And that's I bet you that's a side that most people have no clue. I'm not talking film people, but like public perception of what that role is when you say you work in craft service. You explain what it is. You know, it's like you can gloss over like, oh, I have first aid and I also supply, you know, food and drink and stuff on set. It's kind of, I, I bring it back to a flight attendant because they always say the same thing. They're like, if this plane is in distress, I'm here to help save your life. I'm not just getting you uh, gin and tonics and making yeah. your light work better. But nine times out of ten, that's what we ask for from them, right? So anyway, I think it's a good parallel. I'm it, keeping it in. I agree. <laughs> So you've got your first date, you've got this offer of this Bollywood show. Tell me about that. That's interesting. Well, I came out of that whole uh, time in my life, uh, alcoholism, with not many tools to cope because that's probably why I drank. Right. That'd be my starting point, my birth as an adult. Well, and that's what they say. People that have addictions kind of stop their age where they started that addiction. Yeah. So when they come out of that addiction, they're not the new age. They're the old age where they started. Well, it was like stripping away my armor, which was alcohol, protect myself, my persona, my anxieties. It would bury that. It mm-hmm. would uh, offset my depression. As it does for many, I'm sure, right? All that, any sort of substance. Yeah. Food too, food, shopping, all kinds of stuff in the society now, hoarding. So I jumped in. I had my truck. I bought some snacks. I had no idea what I was fucking doing. I didn't know all the little rules and and expectations of a craft service person or a department is that because you didn't have training in it? Is that different now? Or is exactly. it always like that? It's always like that. 
So there's no formal training besides the first aid to do craft service? Like, you know, you have to go to school now. Okay. I wonder if that's changed. No. No. Okay. The the path is a little bit different today because, let me finish my first story. Okay, sorry. So I jumped into this Bollywood thing and it was fucking chaos. It was a low budget, uh, half the crew is from India, half the crew from, from Canada, and they do things differently in India. There were bare feet all over set. And I was, as first aid, I don't want to be cleaning up bloody feet when somebody steps in glass. The protocols are different. And so as a rigid, I still understood the rules of film um, coming back in, but you had a different film community mashed into our Yeah, there was a unique situation besides just set. Yeah, it was chaos. Yeah. And I I hated it. It was very difficult. I don't know why I didn't give up. Mm -hmm. I needed the money. Yeah, you needed the money. And so I gripped my teeth. I did everything I could to get through it. I tried to listen to my crew. I'm still reeling from this this new life I've taken on, carrying all the shit from the past that I did. Uh, it was a total nightmare. It was so not the best one fire. to start on. <laughs> but the one story I take from that show, and I have a couple, um, was my first day on set, my first time being craft service, my first time being a first aid attendant. thought I was prepared, the equipment, got potato chips in my truck. What about, could go wrong? About an hour into my filming... Our filming, um, I get a call to set. First aid to set, first aid to set. I'm like, fuck. I've been here an hour. I'm just getting set up. Oh, no. First day. So I run to set, and my heart's beating, because at that point I used to think, like, I have to run to a first aid call. You don't. You should be calm. You should keep your heart rate down. Rookie nerves, though. Yeah. Ran in, and there was this Bollywood star who I found out later who he was. His name's Gurdas Man. Um, He's like the Elvis of India. And he was just walking around like, I'm fine, I'm fine. Doing like a little hip swagger, his hands at his side, it's cool, I'm fine, everybody. As most men do when they get hurt. But I I, I found out uh, through the crew around that he hit the front brake instead of the back brake as they're switched from India to Canada, the front and back bike brakes. Bicycle brake, yeah. Did I not say that? You did now. Riding a bike, hit the front brake, went head over handlebars, hit his head, bashed his arm, stood up, I'm fine. So I say, okay, let's let's take you back to my truck. I have a spot. We can sit down. I can check you over, do your vitals, all that shit. Still barely knew how to do first aid, too, to be honest. I, they passed me, and I was not great. So I sit him down in my truck at my first aid desk and ask him a few simple questions. There's a bit of a language barrier, and bam, the guy hits the ground. Oh, my God. Oh this, my this god. This is an hour and Plot fif- twist. Hour and 15 minutes into my first day as a craft service first aid I person. I would have pissed my pants. Holy shit. I, I, it scared me. And did you know how big this guy was or not yet? No. Okay. That's probably better. So what'd you do? Well, as soon as he was uh, on his back laying down, I had his head supported, um, which I should have done right off the top. That was a mistake, but I came out of school improficient. He's still alive today. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Um, got him to do, uh, he didn't speak very good English, got him to do his alphabet or, or count to 20. I just got him talking. Uh, his assistant came up and assisted with communication. Um, but immediately if somebody loses consciousness, they're going to the hospital. So I called an ambulance. I had, uh, the Bollywood production manager and Scott Harper over my shoulders. Hi Scott, by the way, going, you know, if he goes to the hospital, we can't film anymore today. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's super great. He's going to the hospital right now. Well, because time is, as we both know, it's a gun to your head on set, but to the detriment of some process and some common sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't, I didn't care about filming. This person had to get to the hospital. They're in my care. But I had a whole bunch of people behind pressure. me. Pressure. A lot of pressure. Sent him off to the hospital. Turns out he had a broken arm or a fractured arm. Not broken. He had a mild concussion from hitting his head. Uh, but he didn't tell anybody that he was fasting as well, which is why he uh, oh. he passed out on me with that little bit of stress or heart rate rise probably. That and, and then the rest of the show was complete dog shit. Uh, just a nightmare. I could tell you 10 stories about that show, but that it's akin to being thrown in a, into a pool when you can't swim. Yeah. So, but you did go back. You did an, another show after that and then another show, right? Like you, you wanted to keep going. I don't know how. I didn't want to keep going. I needed to. Right. Well, sometimes that's the best way to keep going. You don't have a choice. Yeah. Like you were in it. You had the truck and you're like, well, I got to keep, what am I else am I going to do? I've put money in this truck. I've got this thing set up. I've done my first aid. Like, why not just keep going, right? And so I did. Yeah. And I had, I don't remember the jobs after that. I remember the first one clearly. And I'm sure I had this or that. And I had like a little couple days on a knowledge network thing. And I had little bits of experience. And I sucked. Thankfully, um, through the help of uh, some friends and I'm sure you uh, and other film people who got me lists of craft service people, I called around and I asked for training. I asked for anything. I said, can you give me notes? Can you give me your leftover equipment if you want to get rid of it? I'll pick it out of your garbage. So eventually you gave me a number. You said, hey, try this. Um, My friend Ginger is working with somebody named Cindy on set and said, you can come out. And I went, okay, because my experience hadn't been that great Um, going out and trying to meet people. I got hung up on a lot. So I did it. I bit the bullet. I said, okay, let's go do this again. I drove out to uh, UBC and I believe it was around a neighborhood called, or a building called Cecil Green, which I still film in today and met Ginger briefly who's lovely. I really like Ginger. I actually miss her. I've, I've met her like five times. I'm talking times. to her all the time. I'll tell her I said hello. And She's thank amazing. You. So Ginger introduced me to Cindy Hamilton. Because Ginger was a script supervisor, just to clarify. She was in the world of film and she'd obviously come across Cindy. This is an important and awesome and transforming story for me. And I do get a little choked up. Um, I didn't think you get so choked up in my <laughs> fucking podcast. Um, you're trying to upstage all the other guests here. No, the, I mean, it, it changed my life. I, okay, and I'm not I tell, trying to ruin the moment. Sorry. So I, uh, I walk in this old Winnebago, and there was this blonde, curly-haired, almost annoyingly bubbly, energetic Cindy Hamilton. She's infamous. With good reason. And I was still kind of down. I was still coming out of my shit. I was still dealing with all these hard... Uh, circumstances, ah, what's the word? I I was a shitty craft service person having awful jobs and still struggling with depression and anxiety and all kinds of shit, uh, which is amplified by a tough craft service job. But there was Cindy and she's bubbly and she's happy and, and she exudes love. And immediately I felt kinship with her. And I think her with me and I think her with anybody that she comes across, she she just has so much uh, love for everybody. So we danced. I need her. to buy that in a bottle. You can't. You gotta. You gotta grow it. it. Sounds hard. It's really hard, and it's amazing meeting somebody like that. 
So we danced around a craft service truck and she'd push me around. She'd say, just do this, do that. And something wrong would happen. And she'd say, instead of fuck, she'd say, that's okay. We'll, we'll just have a sandwich with red peppers and salmon. Because who gives a shit? We'll put <laughs> lots of cheese on it. Cheese is good. They love cheese. So she Give had, them cheese. She, she always looked at the bright side. She, the eternal optimist. And I picked up a lot of that. And I don't know how, but I needed that in mm-hmm. my life. I needed it big time. And it was somehow imparted onto me by Cindy. And Cindy had faith in me when I didn't have it in myself. See, I'm getting a little choked up. That's fine, whatever. It's good production value, but it's not visual, so I'll just have to describe it if it gets more dramatic. I'll try and let my voice crack or something. Yeah, please do. It will help. She had faith in me when I really didn't have it in myself. And she said, you could do it, and, and, and don't worry about it, and... And just go, you're fine. I'm like, that's the fucking director. He's like, the, I can't go bug that guy. She's like, get in there. John's a nice guy, you know? She would need to jump out for a couple hours to go do personal life stuff. And she'd bring me in to take care of her truck and walk me through all the little things that need doing. But she'd trust me and she'd say, just make a fucking chocolate tray. It's fine. Do what you want. Have fun. I've never met somebody in my life like that before, Cindy. And I've never met somebody that can match that level of human being by 50%. I have not met anybody like that since. And I feel like she's uh, an angel. Yeah, you want to keep those people near you. So It's infectious. It's calming being around energy like that, right? It's infectious. I don't want to say our house wasn't like that. <laughs> we had a tense environment. Yeah, we did. Well, and our parents are not the eternal optimists, to be kind. So... When you get that, I think it's probably really, um, like, attractive. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like standing in front of a world-famous monument monument, and looking up. It's yeah, exactly. like standing under the Eiffel Tower, Tower for the first time. Yeah. Well, maybe you're up. given what you need in those moments, right? Like, it's kind of, if you believe in that, kind of came at the right time when you needed it. I think you got to fight through enough shit and something will present itself. Yeah, well, that's part of it too, right? Like you're given what you need and you were ready for that and you kind of got it, right? Yeah. So Cindy trusted me with her truck at times. She needed help and she'd pay me out of pocket and that kept me afloat and hopeful that I could do this. And so she just kept, you know, like a baby taking its first step. She kept tapping me in the hips going, go on, you can do it, you can do it. And I would do anything for her at that point and... And I'd still do anything for her to help her. If she needs anything, I'll drop it. I'm gone. Just not right now because we're recording. No, right now I would do it. (laughs) Cindy, don't call right now. So. Yeah, she's amazing. And she's infamous in the city. And then she went on to do the grilled cheese. Mom's grilled cheese truck. Mom's grilled cheese. And that's like also famous on set. Tony tells a story in his podcast or in, in his episode how that's one of the most memorable meals on set was him on like a cold rainy night, getting grilled cheese with a pickle from Cindy's truck, which is amazing. She's like feeding humans that they remember years later on set in the pissing rain eating her food. Come on. Nobody forgets Cindy. Right? Yeah. Famous. That's awesome. Famous all over set. And really generous with her time. And I remember this time when you were doing this stuff and everybody wasn't generous with their time. Some people were very hesitant to share their knowledge because it was more, they felt it was more competitive. And I don't want to slag that either way. I, everybody's grinding. I get it. And I will say craft service is one person on set, 
Whereas if you're part of a lighting crew, it's not as competitive. You need a whole group of people. But on craft, like it's one chance to get that job. Otherwise, you're screwed. So some people did not want to help you, even though Ginger gave a lot of names. Cindy was 150% open to sharing all of her knowledge. And and it was just like amazing. That amazing. got you, that like kicked you into the next level, I would say. Um, so I kept kept ties with Cindy and I got out there on my own and I tried to make more relationships uh, within film, uh, which was very protectionist and you had to kind of break in. Uh, it's still a little protectionist, but we're more of a community today amongst craft service people. Right. <clears throat> but at that time, I, I made more contacts. I busted my butt. I started to exude a lot of positivity and energy that actually somehow Cindy affected me with, which is incredible. Because I'm not, I wasn't that person. I mean, energy, but usually it was put into depressive shit or anger or other things. So I carried that forward with me. That's the biggest thing that that woman gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's important on set. It's a very stressful place. Positive people definitely make strides. Heck yes. And I didn't know that at the time. I was just being myself. And I loved the organized chaos of it all. And I started to thrive and and I got really good feedback after Cindy's kind training on my attitude and my craft service tables and my general persona on set. I'd say I'm more myself on set than I am day-to-day life because everybody out here in the normal world thinks I'm weird and eccentric. But so I really started to thrive in film and I started to make friends and contacts and production manager contacts. Uh, One specifically being Ken Lawson. Ken Lawson, I don't know how he got my number. He called me up one day and he said, hey, uh, I got this thing. It's this little show and it's kind of low budget, but it's really fun. And Ken had a really good attitude. He was really uh, straight talking, no bullshit guy, uh, which I appreciated in film because especially back then people were snakes. It's going to be a good job. It'll be fun. It's going to be lots of fun. What was his title? What was he? Ken? Yeah. Uh, Ken was a production manager, but okay. I don't know if he was a unit manager or a... Just for people listening that don't understand all the roles, like a production manager, sort of, you know, what their role is in terms of getting crew, etc. It was him and his partner, Phil, um, who they'd been working in film for years. And so him and Phil uh, ran this show, I think, the first time. And so they gave each other a title, but really they were just managing this production called Untold Stories of the ER. And that would have been about 10 years ago today. And so I did this show. I had lots of fun. I was liked by the crew. Uh, Once again, Riverview Hospital in a different building. Recurring theme. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a film business in Vancouver. You got to shoot at Riverview. (laughs) So I, I did that job, had a great time, made a good little chunk of money and kept plugging on and Ken brought me into this and that. One thing was called My Babysitter's an Alien. I don't know where that went. I met some great people on there. Jeez, I can't remember all the little shows, but Ken would call me every time he had something going on. And I liked him, he liked me. And so I did Untold Stories, I think, four years with Ken. Sadly, uh, about, uh, about four or five years ago, Holden was just born. Five years ago, Ken Lawson passed away. Mm. He had a stroke on set. He was with his uh, good set buddy, uh, I believe in a truck when it happened. So he was raised to the hospital and really sadly he didn't make it. Do you know how old he was? Let's say I'd like to say he was 38 because he was so young and vibrant. <laughs> but maybe Ken was about 
57 to 60. Well, the reason I ask is because, you know, you see some of these IATSE in memoriams and how young people are. Like in some of these departments that are, you know, film is a tough gig and people don't necessarily make it to 99 in film. You know, it, it's a it's a toll on your health. And if, I don't want to say that's what it was with him, but I did ask his age for that kind of curiosity. No, this was this was this wasn't caused by film. Okay. I would I would absolutely agree with you. <clears throat> but in this case, I uh, I think Ken lived pretty healthy. Uh wasn't caused by film. Okay. Kind of gutted me because he was one of those people and production managers that was a straight shooter and there was no bullshit. Can can I have some more money? There is no more money. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I'm not I'd, lying to you. I'd yeah. love to, but there's no more money. So after Ken passed, I stuck with Untold Stories of the ER. So how are you liking film at this point? Like, obviously, that relationship helped. Were you getting better at the job? Were you feeling like it was kind of a well-oiled machine now? I won't say well-oiled because there's so many variables every day. Yeah, but as best you could control. I was doing pretty damn good um, for my skill set and, and trying to grow. Um, again, craft service. Some people at the top of the game today, I can't compete with some of these people. They have amazing ideas for their, for their food game mm-hmm. or the way they lay out their craft service tent. Uh, and we'll get to the specifics of the table yeah, and stuff. the housekeeping sure. stuff after. But some people are just, I, some things I don't have the, the skills or energy or time to do because I've organized my, the way I do my job and it's hard to change that. Today, or even 10 years ago, it was hard to change. And there's room for everyone. It's busy. You don't have to be those people, is my point, right? No, and, and everybody's got their faults. And I don't, I won't judge anybody. But I know some craft service people are good at, you know, making super good sandwiches. But they can't apply a band-aid. So I've always strived to be a balanced, crafty be it with first aid or food and try and maintain some level of happiness with my crew. I really like taking care of everybody, treating everybody as an equal. Um, so that was my progression up until about four or five years ago. And I'm always pushing for better. I'm always wanting to be better. Skipping forward today, I, I, I have fantastic feedback from the people I work with and my production manager, uh, producers, People on set that I do a kick-ass job, and I'm proud of that, and I always want to do better, um, and you're always going to get complaints from people. Well, that's just life. Would you remember your uh, worst complaint? I don't, because I take everything pretty personally, because I have a lot of pride in what I do, and so it's hard when somebody's like, you you know what, you really need more teas on your table. I'm like, there's 15 fucking teas on the goddamn yeah. craft service table. But you need double Bergemont Earl Grey. I love helping people. But it's those kind of comments that drive us crazy because yes. we're all slugging to yeah. get. Okay, so, you know, I kind of wanted to talk about the housekeeping part of Crafty, mainly because I have some curious questions and I feel like you could probably answer them since that is your job. So I kind of see Crafty. I came to me the other night like it's a bit like a Seven Eleven on set. Now, I'm not talking about the first aid part. But you've got catering, which is sort of set meals. You go up to the catering truck. You have your, you know, salad and entrees and dessert, et cetera. It's a set time. But Crafty's always open. Yeah. It's like 7-Eleven. Fuck you. It's always open. I'm not open at breakfast time. <laughs> go to catering and get breakfast and coffee. Are you um, there first? Like, how early are you on set compared to everybody else? There's on, a Jenny op and then what? 
There's the Jenny up in catering her first, I would imagine. And I roll in usually an hour to half an hour to an hour before crew call. Okay. So you've got your, your like magic, you've got your magic van, your new version yeah. of the Dodge that we drove around in, but it's a one ton truck, right? You pull up. Yeah. Why am I cursed to drive <laughs> these big fucking vans? I don't know. It's comforting. <laughs> So you pull up, you park. What do you do? Like you've got water. Give me, give me a bit of the rundown because I'm curious, and I know I've talked to friends about it, and they are curious as well. And it might seem like you know boring details, but just like humor me. Well, I just went over it about uh, for about five and a half months. Okay. Um, I don't know if I can say the show I was just working on. I was told mm. to keep pretty quiet. Let's say I was working on a really big show coming out this spring that. It's actually coming out April 1st. I, I don't know. I, I won't say much It's coming out April else. 1st. We won't talk about it, but it's a reboot of an old show. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And it looks pretty friggin' exciting. There's a lot of amazing people in it. But actually, here's the thing. This will probably air once it's already out, so I don't think you have to worry. Well, it's Twilight Zone. Yeah, let's just say it, because I will air this after it comes out, which is April 1st. And it's it's looking awesome. I'm, I've been ex- I was excited to be a part of it. Would you say that's the biggest show you've been on? I feel like that's a like a career highlight to date. Digression. What is a digression? What I just asked? Yeah, we were okay, talking about like what I do on set in the morning to set you, up. You interrupted. Okay, so you, you show up on set. What do you do? You plug in. What are you plugging in? Like, give me the dummy version. Crafty um, for Dummies book. I'll give you the speed breakdown. Okay, go. Um, I'm called to set. I have to be set up at around 8, 8.30. Crew call might be 8 o'clock. So I roll in at 7, 7.30. Park the truck. Call the Jenny Ops. Say, plug me in. I need power. If you want coffee, I need power. Good Jenny Ops usually know we land and try and hook us up as fast as they can. Um, they got a lot of stuff to do, too. They provide the power to set for anybody that doesn't know what we're saying. You have to come with your own power. So when you're in the middle of a forest, you obviously can't find electricity anywhere. The Jenny operator is your power for the entire yeah. production. Just so people that might not understand what that is. So lately it's been just the Jenny op plugging me in or, or uh, the sometimes the electrics guys. So they'll plug me in. I'll juice my truck up with power. Uh, I'll rip all the shit out of my truck, and I tell you that thing is full. Tables, fridges, uh, coolers, boxes of produce, odds and ends to run my day. Um, it's just, it's all over the truck. It's a cube truck that is built into a kitchen, and then it looks like a pack rat has packed it full of shit. Anyway, we empty it out. We pull the coolers out, keep them close to the truck, uh, put our step down, open the doors, pull the tables out, hopefully... The locations department has set up a tent for us, or we have a spot where we're designated to set up for that day. We'll put our tables in the tent, uh, line the tent with tables, and put our tablecloths down. Start pulling gear out. So we have, on my setup, I've got one larger mini fridge, one small mini fridge, a shoe rack, which operates as a bread and cereal rack. I've got um, shadow boxes, so old like Coca-Cola boxes, carnation boxes, some bought from Winners and HomeSense that I pack things in and then I set them up as, you know, tiering for the table. We get the tables laid out. If I've got an assistant, I put my assistant on the tables to fine tune. I jump to the truck. I hack up a tray of fruit at light speed. I hack up some pastries. I do a veggie tray. I do boiled eggs. I do coffee. I do, I do a kitchen's worth of food. And we do that as fast as possible so we can stop work and have a little break and right. breathe. <clears throat> How and many people, like what's the largest that's kind of come in one show in the morning? For me, my largest crew is about 200, 210. Wow. 
in which case I've had two assistants with me to help. On average, about 150, 120. Do extras eat more? I hear they eat more than everyone else. Is this, is this, is this fallacy? You know, I, I respect everybody's role in film, but there is definitely a, a conflict between background performers and craft service people. Background performers aren't getting paid a lot. When you're showing up to a job in which you sit a lot or wait a lot, you want a tea, you want some snacks to pass the time. You're going to 7-Eleven. You're competing against 50 other background performers, so you're leaving shit all over the table. Thanks, guys. So you can get your stuff and get out of there. Right. Fair enough. And so I, from a craft service standpoint, sometimes they are a swarm of locusts. Yes. But not intentionally, to your point. There's always good groups, and there's groups that come in and they understand what what the reality is, but then there's groups that are in for the take, and I think a lot of people would feel that way coming to a craft service table. Yeah, it's just laying out there asking you to Holy eat Holy shit, free granola bars? Yeah. And soda and coffee and all these packaged snacks that I can fill my bag with? I get it. I was, uh, I was like that when I was a junior PA. Right, filling up. Um, so the background are, are work. Do actors come to Crafty? You know, the thing about actors, the first question I get every time I say, I work in film, <gasps> have you met celebrities? I know. That's always the question everyone asks. Sure they do. Well, but... I just wondered if their assistants came instead of them. Yeah, that happens too. It depends on the actor. I've had actors, actresses that would come to Crafty and just poke around, or some would jump in my truck because they know, hey, the show's essentially... I'm here making money for the show, so I'm just going to storm in your truck and ask for stuff. And for the most part, uh, it's it's like a grip or an electric at the table. A grip or an electric jumping into the truck. Yeah, no thank you. As we say to our kids, no thank you. No thank you. <laughs> no thank you, VIP but actor. It's like anybody, though. That's That's the thing people keep missing when they're like, have you met celebrities? What are they like? Well, they're like you or your mom or your dad or your grandma or your great. They're just fucking people. Yeah. But I think that's part of why I'm doing this podcast is because there is a magical element or a perceived magical element to what that world is because people can't get in on set, right? You walk by and there's black tents and it's shrouded and a lot of people closing doors, etc. And so people don't really know what it's like. I mean, I know what it's like. I'm married to someone in film and, and your whole life, but many people have no clue. So I think there's like part of why I wanted to do this podcast was to sort of give the reality of what it's like day to day to work in these roles, to deal with actors and directors and, and regular people and just how it all kind of works, you know. So that's kind of why I'm digging in that, not necessarily for celebrity stories, but just the questions that I get asked, you know. Well, they're like everybody else. They're flawed, too. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I've had, uh, I remember having actresses, uh, or one in particular who I won't really name, was having a bad day, man, and was just, was carrying it around and was short and rude. But I've also had PAs act like that. Yeah, exactly. And I've had actors, actresses that are super nice and, and forthcoming, and you think, well, this actor or actress is a really good, nice person. Well, they're just having a good day. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, everyone has pressure on set. Everyone forgets that those actors have pressure too. So part of, you know, one thing I did note when I looked up craft service from a layman's perspective was sort of it's like the hub of the film set. So like the proverbial water cooler, is it, I'm asking you, sort of a place where everybody can gather. So you want to go talk some shit out about a scene or whatever. It's like an easy place to say, let's walk to Crafty and get a coffee or grab a snack. Is that true? I'm just curious. 
It's true-ish. Like it's somewhere to go that isn't, you know, weird. Nobody's working on a scene in craft service. I've never. No, said, I don't mean I've working on a scene. That. I mean getting a way to talk about something. You might, you know, like. It's an escape. Yeah. It's a mini vacation away from set. There you go. Some people are always on vacation. <laughs> And some people... Just like real life. Some people never get there. And quite often the director and the first first AD, the first assistant director um, and cast can't get away. Yeah, but you bring stuff, lot. right? You bring stuff to set often. Yeah, we do sandwiches three hours after our call time. So people can get a snack if they can't leave. Quote, unquote, hot snack happens three hours. Ah, the infamous hot snack. Three hours after lunch. We have to deliver it to set to keep the crew going. What's your favorite hot snack to serve? None of them. Come on. We wrapped Indulge early. Indulge me. We wrapped early. No hot snack today. Uh, my favorite hot snack, uh, macaroni and cheese, because nobody complains. That's a crowd favorite. Except for the gluten-freeers. Oh, but, yeah. But they're still but like, oh, pasta. mac and cheese. And then they're like, oh, but I can't have it. But they never seem to be mad. They're always happy to see it. <laughs> do, they, do you make rice pasta for them? No. Okay. But still, we take care of people on set, so I always offer, you know, do you want a tuna cup? Do you want something different? Can I help you? Because what, do you have, what's the weirdest request you've ever had? Nobody's weird. Everybody just wants comfort food. Okay. Um, I've, I've covered a few of the uh, actors, actresses, writers. Um, They're just all actors now, by the way. Just why? So you we know. can't distinguish between men and Apparently women Apparently, you're anymore. just an actor. Oh, okay, cast. There you go. So writers, what were you saying? Uh, once in a while, cast off riders, and it's something that their assistant has been trained on, and their assistant tends to pass it to production. But in my experience, the cast that came in and and had this long list of different flavored of LaCroix water to bring on set, they had one. They are like, thanks a lot, and then they got back to work. Right. So, so it was maybe less them, was it? Yeah, I find that I don't really get needy cast. Okay. I made a list of things that I want to know if you have on your truck. Okay, shoot. Tampons. Yep. That's good to know. Ladies out there, there's tampons at Crafty. Pads and pawns. Amazing. What do you call them? Pads and pawns? Pads and pawns. <laughs> I always get the embarrassing question or that, that girl that's like, excuse me. Oh. I'm like the only one in the truck. Excuse me. <laughs> do you have tampons? I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. Here you go. Like, Just torpedoing them across the... <laughs> pretty much, man. <laughs> okay, what about cough drops? Uh, yep. Breath mints. Yep. Dog treats. No. no well, dog. sure, I've got ham. But you don't have, like, little doggy bones for if cats bring their pet or... No. Okay, just curious. Uh, vitamins. <laughs> yes, plenty. Anything for a hangover? Sure, yeah. You got, like, the emergency or... Do you mm. use those? Emergency, orange juice, shit piles of water, man. True. And a lecture. You're um, the best person to give that one. Yeah, sometimes. You know what happened to me when I had a hangover? <laughs> I almost lost my parents' van. <laughs> I was living in a van down by the river. Uh, could have been close. Uh, what else did I have? What about kombucha? Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, that's kind of a special request thing. It's just not in my bones to go pick up kombucha. I've got my own style of doing craft service, so I need to be indoctrinated to some of these uh, niche markets. But kombucha, I've had Niche kombucha. markets? You sound 80. In well, Vancouver, kombucha is not a niche market. Fair enough. That, that was all I had on my list. Oh. What, what else you got on there? We all know the regulars. What are some obscure things that people might not know? And now they will know and come to you, and you will thank me for sending more people your way. Not. I wish I could say I had obscure things. I get some... Uh... What about uh, condoms? No, I've been told I should carry condoms. It wouldn't hurt. 
Nobody should be fucking on set. And if you if you're going they're, off they're set, you got after. a date. Go to a grocery store and get some. But think how much you will shine if you were the person that provided that condom. Someone's in a pinch, and you're like, you know what, buddy? Here you go. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any. Okay. I could and should. I don't. Think about it. I've never been asked. I've been asked by one producer about five years ago, and that's Ew, it. Ew, who was it? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> was he from L.A.? Yes. Yeah, that's what I figured. No weird stuff. A lot of comfort food. Uh, it's, it's simple things people have in their own kitchen that they want. So have you noticed any sort of dietary changes? Have people gotten healthier? Everybody's afraid of gluten. Okay. People are healthier. And you know what else I read the other day? People actually should not be afraid of gluten. It's actually the, uh, a lot of it is Monsanto and the glyphosate, the, the spray on the wheat. Bang that drum on your health podcast. All right. I'm just saying, it's not about the wheat, it's about organic wheat. Uh, People are healthier on set. They're eating healthier. They're thinking about what they eat. They're not jumping into donuts. Production asked me not to bring big piles of donuts every day. There's no pop unless somebody specifically requests and has permission for me to go get them pop. But didn't you also say you were told on some of these shows recently to be more healthy and then this, the crew was like, where's the donuts? Yeah. Like yeah, they want happens. it. At the end of the day, they want that carb and that creature comfort. Some people do. Many people are, are happy with the healthier, energetic, energized, energizing food that I supply. Any interesting stories from said anything stand out from your career so far? You know, my favorite stories are... Um, it's been 15 years now, right, you said? My favorite stories are when I get to help people. Uh, people getting hurt isn't fun, uh, but it's really rewarding to see that you've sent somebody off to get proper medical assistance and you've helped them out in some way. Um, recently, and here's the full circle and it, the timing's pretty good to come about, for it to come about, is I've dealt with a number of uh, serious personal um, mental health issues on set. And I have... Sorry, just would you say that's because you're craft service and, and that's sort of that hub to go to or no, it's unrelated to that? It's somewhat craft service, but it's also uh, somewhat that that love, care, and interest that Cindy Hamilton imparted onto me is that I do want to care for that nurturing instinct. And I've been through the shit. I lived with the the shit. So I met a a young lady on set about three months ago, who I identified as a younger person dealing with their demons and depression. You get to know these people. Craft service is also like mom's kitchen. Uh, So when you click with somebody, and I click with many people on set, say for three people out of a hundred, people come in and they talk about their shit. I had a young lady come in in my truck and me and my assistant took a liking to, and she's really cool. But it became really apparent that she's dealing with a heavy, serious amount of uh, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, uh, suicidal thoughts. And so the role that I've taken on over the years of helping people is now extended to my personal life. And I, I meet people who need help. And it, it's not about the job anymore. It's about helping people. I've made phone calls after work. I've made connections on the weekend to try and help somebody. Um, I'm still talking to somebody today off the clock uh, to try and get them some help. Uh, so it kind of came full circle. Yeah, absolutely did. And so the thing that Cindy Hamilton did for me so many years ago I can perform today. And that's what I'm fighting to do for somebody. Um, in fact, a few minutes after I leave, I have to make a call. Good for you. That's awesome. Proud of you, little bro. Thanks. Well, we're running out of time. I do want to revisit just kind of what you're working on to date, only because once this airs, it'll be kind of done. 
But you did work on the Twilight Zone. Yeah. Jordan Peele. Very exciting. I don't know how you feel. I feel like that's one of your most blue chip jobs to date. Pretty fucking cool. We're all proud of it. The whole crew is proud of it. Yeah, so I think it start, it starts airing April 1st, and there's about 10 episodes in season one. Lots of cameos. I've been, and I'm not getting this from you, for the record, I'm creeping online. Uh, all kinds of cool cameos. I'm so psyched. It looks so amazing. And honestly, I, like, adore Jordan Peele. I'm so jealous that you got to work on that. I cannot confirm or deny. I know. Any of the cameos. That's why I'm saying it. I know the cameos. I already Googled them. There's all kinds of cool people. Just Google Twilight Zone cameos and you'll see yourself. <laughs> and then you're going to work on a pilot. It's pilot season coming up in Vancouver. It is. It's spring, and I hear there's a ton of them. And one of them you're working on is Nancy Drew. You don't have to say anything, neither confirm nor deny, but that's one of the pilots that's shooting. Um, and that's the CW Network, so Supernatural, Supergirl, Arrow, which is such a huge contributor to the economy here for film and shows. So yet another. Also, Riverdale is CW. It's all of those. That's amazing, CW here, actually, how much they do. They bring a lot of work to our community. Tons. Thank you, CW. Absolutely. Like, how many people would be out of work if we didn't have that network shooting those shows here? So we're wrapping it up. Uh, anything else you want to talk about before I... I'm going to talk about your uh, your rap a little, and you're going to maybe hip-hop us out of here. Maybe that, I will. That was super uncool the way I said it, but... Yeah, it's like you're, you're an old lady you're or gonna, something now. You're going to... Beat us out of here, hit, jive us out of here, one thing rip I'll us say, out of here. One thing I'll say that I think everybody needs to know in film and the young people uh, and a lot of the lessons I've gotten from the older folks or the, the people that have been in film a long time is balance your, your, your film work with your life. Because as much as film feels like life and family and, and home, there's still a world all around us, uh, families we all have at home. Uh, so you got to take time off too, man. I think that's great advice. I love my job, but film ain't life. It's not your real life. Uh, so that's a big lesson I've taken I've taken on over the years, or I've, I've been trying to practice more. But would you like to hear one of my current raps? I would. So tell me a little bit, just because if no one's heard of what you do, you give a little spiel about yourself and your alias and then kind of explain. Maybe you can wrap us out of here. I'm an underground rapper uh, by the name of Omega the Enemy, O-H-M-E-G-A, the enemy in parentheses. Uh, I've been doing it for about five years. I've been doing music my whole life. Five years? Ten years? I don't know. A long time. So yeah, you... and I'm working on a seven, eight song album right now. I'm going to record it a little bit, take it into a proper studio, get it done, push it out into the world, and then get back to film work. What's the, uh, do you have the name for the album? Yeah, since Holden won't understand it. Uh, Holden came up with a song title that I ran with. It's called... Uh, Holden's Your Son. My Son. Uh, he came up with the song title, I Think We Should Just Die Out in the Storm. And it's an amazing, it's the best song title I've ever heard in my life. What did he mean by it? I don't know. It's a song he wanted to write. Oh, I see. Okay. And so I took it from him and he was happy I did. And I wrote a song around that title and I put him in it. And what's the meaning of it? The meaning of it is... uh, I mean, it can have multiple meanings. I know it doesn't have to be... The imagery is that uh, Holden and myself or anybody, it's for anybody... Uh, but we are trapped in this place, uh, be it physical or metaphorical. So we're trapped in this place, and the place is poison and toxic, and the world is in decline. But we decide uh, to leave this safe place and go out into the world because we might as well just die out in the fucking storm. 
Since the world's ending, we, why die in a poison environment when you can charge forward into the shit and have some kind of chance out there? And I love making music about fighting against misery. Or it's a bit sci-fi. Escaping hell because everybody carries around their own personal hell. Um, so I suppose I can do that one. Why don't you do that one and it'll uh, get us out of here. All right. In a good way. Thanks for coming, by the way. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. It was fun. It went places I didn't think it would go, which is kind of cool. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Give her. If I can recollect the events that had transpired, I'll transmute whatever message needs to be transmitted, but the transmitter is sending the wrong waves. Waiting in this box, it's toxic, and it brings out our darker sides, and I think we should just leave this place. That noise. Is it war? The whiskey's gone, but it can't put down the shot glass. Somebody's knocking. Who's got that? Man, it sounds as if the apocalypse is starting to happen outside beyond the door. And I stand up and plant my feet firmly on the worn floor. As a creak envelops the room from the old boards, I look over my shoulder and peer straight into your soul to say, I don't think this place can hold us anymore. As the ground shakes beneath us and it seems that it was to this end I was born. A rock in a hard place and no win situation. But today is the day, son. The choice is mine and yours. And if I had to wager on a more noble way to meet the Lord, I think we should just die out in the storm. Thanks for listening to Ventropolis. I know you have a million choices for podcasts out there. And for a brief moment in time, you've chosen mine. If you like what you hear, I would so appreciate you going to iTunes and either subscribing, sharing it, or leaving a review. You can also find me at ventropolispodcast.com with my Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook links. Or drop me a line if you want to be on the show or have any feedback.